Hello, this is Nick Oswald, the founder of Bite Size Bio, welcoming you to this Life Science Marketing, to Marketing Society panel. The Life Science Marketing Society aims to bring you experiential wisdom, advice and insight from fellow marketers across the life sciences industry and beyond. Today's panel session is titled Maximizing Your Content Strategy, Expert Perspectives on the Future of Content Marketing. And the panel are Debbie Cochrane, who is the, the founder of Page Medical, she, they provide uh, full service support to healthcare patient and commercial organizations looking for marketing insight, product positioning, and omni-channel engaging solutions in healthcare, education solutions in healthcare. Stephen McTaggart is the founder of Build Business Online, who work with clients throughout the UK and internationally, helping them to generate significant revenue through better search engine rankings, traffic generation, and lead generation. And Linnea Wolf is the Assistant Marketing Manager of the Protein Tech Group. They are the providers of high-quality antibodies, ELISA kits, and proteins. Today's session will be a free-form discussion on all things content marketing. We have plenty of topics to discuss, but we'd love this to be shaped by you, the audience, so please feel free to submit your questions for the panel at any time. Content marketing is an ever-morphing beast that is continually reshaped by technology and consumer preference. Today, we will be diving into the jaws of this beast and trying to make some sense of where we are and where we are going in the world of content marketing. So can I set the scene by asking the panel, starting with Debbie, from your own experience and perspective, what is your definition of content marketing and where does it fit into your own professional worldview? Uh, thanks, Nick, and thanks for inviting me to come along today. Um, I think content marketing is one of those uh, buzzwords that everybody likes to, to fling around. But I think in terms of my world, it means making sure that you've got good digestible content that achieves the objectives for whoever your target audience is, whether that's a learner, whether that's a client, whether that's a consumer. But it's actually really getting the right message to the right person in the right way. And I think that's ever evolving. Um, and it's making sure that I think we're all keeping uh, abreast of all of the technologies to make sure that we, we use the right technology at the right time and not just because it's there. Yeah, that's a good a good way to look at it. The buzzwords and the technology, you would, we want to get away from the buzzwords and sort of uh, into the technology. Um, so we're using, we're getting the best delivery and uh, for the end users, I guess. And Stephen, how does that look from your perspective? Well, I suppose for me, uh, content marketing really is about, in the first case, attracting, uh, and then building and strengthening a relationship with a, a desired audience. And, uh, you know, good content is gonna inspire trust, uh, it's best, it can inspire a sense of loyalty and a desire to engage more with whoever it is is uh, is providing it. You know, I think, you know, with and the internet and all this, you know, all the electronic stuff, it's it's still important to remember that, you know, people buy people. Uh, and that, that's very important. People want to support, you know, people and companies that, that give them value. Uh, and from my perspective as a search engine optimization uh, expert, then, for me, potentially every every piece of content is as if you're going fishing. Every piece of content potentially is a is another fishing line you're putting in the river. And you know, if you've got appropriate bait uh, and more lines in the river, then you've got much better opportunity of catching the fish that you're looking for. So uh, it's it's really a key for for just engaging, attracting, and and then hopefully carrying on that relationship. You know, with the people who you who you find. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I like the fishing analogy. Makes sense. 
and uh, and Linnea, how does that look in your world? Yeah, um, for me, for my eyes, the the content marketing is one of the best ways that you can make a connection, like like what Stephen was talking about, making connections in the eyes of your target audience, target audience, whether that's talking about inspiring curiosity or joining in on a conversation, sharing your favorite tools, answering questions that people might have. Our customers are people too, and I think thinking about it from their perspective and adding just adding to the conversation in a unique way or even in a commonplace way. People want their opinions to be reinforced and for them to find out new and interesting things. So for me, content is things to answer those questions. So overall, between the three of you, it's about pulling people in, giving them what they need in order to engage them and and pull and bring them uh, value that, that engenders trust and then moves people towards in, in a marketing sense, whatever you want them to do, I guess. Um, and uh, Debbie touched on the, the technology side of things. So obviously that's one of the things we're here to discuss is how is technology shaping this? So let's get a bit more specific. Let's, with something that is a piece of technology, or it's not, not a new one, but there's been a bit of a generational shift as well as a technological shift. And that, and that is the rise of video content with platforms such as YouTube and latterly TikTok really driving the consumption of video in many sectors does this translate to biotech that's what the question i would like to ask but specifically linnea how important do you think video is in, for engaging uh, a target audience of bioscientists yeah uh, i mean for bioscience and for us serving life scientists i think that as as we grow and as it becomes more commonplace and more industries move into a more social platform type area, it becomes more and more important. And obviously other companies are learning the same things we are. So content is ever growing and ever competing against what you have to say. But in the end, people want, I think people want to talk to people. People want to buy things and get recommendations from people. And I think that social platforms, especially video platforms like Instagram Reels, like YouTube in long form and short form content and TikTok uh, are perfect ways to kind of pull back that curtain and reveal like the human side behind your organization. Yeah. I was going to say, honestly, when I first moved into the corporate world, um, I'm, I noticed that in my head, these companies that I was buying products from were these huge entities that had no face, that had robotic arms packaging my products and who had automated processes sending me all my content. But now that I'm one of those people behind those, those companies, I'm realizing that's not the case. And I think that, like I said, social media is a perfect place to get a more one-on-one -on -one connection with your audience as much as you can. So the Protein Tech Instagram channel is quite lively. How, how does that, what does that bring you you use a mix of video content and stills and things like that in there how what what engagement do you find you get in there in that community you have yeah so instagram for us is one of the places that we like to be the most fun and we like to have the most fun with our customers uh, a very informal voice in comparison with like posts on linkedin or or Facebook or Twitter, which is huge for the for the life science space. But with Instagram, we like to have more fun with our customers. Um, we've recently started adding memes to our Instagram channel alongside our product content and our educational content, which has been very successful for us when it comes to engagement. Um, and as far as like the types of engagement you're getting, as, as just as a person, I think that Instagram is a place where you can go 
and feel very um, on the same level as the people who are running these companies. So you've, it's approachable. You can send a message in their DMs. You can comment on their posts and somebody will respond to you if your channel is active. Um, so I think it's, again, just reinforcing the fact that Instagram is informal and it helps get down on the level of, your, of each individual customer and create that connection. So I guess that the the technology, the new the technology of Instagram is allowing you to to do what what Stephen mentioned there, which is get you know um, get close to them and you know bring them in and, and see that there's a person there. Right? You, everyone's mentioned that. So um, if we if we uh, if we go over to Debbie, Debbie, one of the services that your agency offers is webinars, um, virtual events, and hybrid events. So what what does the increasing appetite for video mean for webinars and hybrid events how do you see the demand of those developing post-covid yeah so um it's one of the areas that kind of we exploded um over covid um because we had sort of uh created a niche for ourselves as being sort of experts in infection um and who knew, who knew that during covid suddenly everybody wanted to be an expert in infection so um what it was it, it enabled a real global reach for all of our, our content um, and I think the sort of from a video side obviously that is what webinars is all about and we now in the post-covid era are we ever going to be in the post-covid era not sure um, but you know we will always be a hybrid um, so we we were back to physical events but we are now live streaming and we we learned an awful lot during the COVID years um, about what not to do and what platforms not to use and um, that kind of thing. Because you, you get to a point where you just say, actually, it's not the same. You know, it is not the same presenting like this as it is presenting on a stage to people. And there is training involved. There is, um, you, you have to understand and produce it like you would a, a TV show. So where That's we true. are now doing hybrid events, we are have producers. So we do countdowns, we have um, breaks between sessions to make sure that it is digestible for people that are online as well. So I think, you know, the, the world has changed. It will never go back because the expectation is that you can, A, either be there in person or watch it virtually, and, and also B, that you can see it again. So you can watch it on demand as soon as you want to, wherever you want to, whether it's on a train going home or, you know, on whatever device that you're on. So I think it has changed a lot. Um, and for us, it's more about now capturing what we're doing now is capturing that delegate experience through video. So we're doing a lot of the B-roll stuff to actually go around the conference, get some of the talking heads to say, what do you think about it? Why would you want to come next year? So that people understand that maybe they're attending virtually this year, but actually it looks kind of cool. And I, I might you know, take a trip next year and actually come and, and be there in person and experiencing all the networking side. Yeah, that's interesting about uh, going out and capturing the the vox pops, if you like, vox pop, if you like, of the of the conference experience. One of the things I was going to ask you was um, how you know the video that's generated from those um, from those events like that. You're used, then it gives you much more opportunity to to use them for wider marketing campaigns. Is so that absolutely. is that something you see happening? Yeah. 
I'm a great, great believer in repurposing content because I think we all go to an awful lot of effort to produce the content that, that we have. And it, I always seem it's such a shame that it never you know, resurfaces in other areas. So we then tend to cut it down. We use it on social media. We'll then use it in different campaigns um, for ourselves um, as an agency, as well as for our clients to just really help to you know, grow their membership if it's a society or actually engagement if they're a, um, one of our um, pharmaceutical or biotech or device companies. Um, so it's all about, you know, film it once, use it as many times as you possibly can. Yeah. And so you have this great thing then where a webinar or, or a, say, a presentation within a, conf or within a conference becomes this multifaceted, multi-approach multi event where people can view it live or they can uh, view it live remotely or they can watch it fully on demand or they can watch snippets and get get little um, talking points or little uh, you know the the main points from it in some sort of summary you've made so that as a marketer that's quite a remarkable achievement you know and that's been driven by COVID really. Oh, oh it has and, and also I think it's not to underestimate the the value of the people that can actually use it so we've got some really key people in our area that you get them to a conference and they will take their own bits of video and start sharing it and actually do your job for you um which is great yeah that's then you're pulling in the people as it's, it's very democratizing this thing so uh Stephen um in terms of organic search how is video how is the rise of video content um uh, affecting the way or organic search and the way that people find information that they need on the internet is video killing written content that's a good question. I don't think it's killing it, but I certainly, if I look at even my own behaviour, I watch way more video and take information in much more now through through video. Uh, I mean, partly that's also because more and more people are producing content in video, you know. Uh, yeah. I think one of the things about video for me is a bit like uh, like radio. You know, I can you can have the radio on and you'd be doing something else. Uh, so you know, if I'm driving, I can listen to music, yeah. I can listen to the radio, I can listen to a podcast, you know, Spotify in my in my car. Uh, so I can consume this while doing something else. And with video, you know, I may be working on or doing something on this screen and on this screen, there may be a video playing. Uh, I know there's probably some information in there that I want to hear, but I'll just let it run. And then, you know, when the, the thing comes up, oh, I want to engage with that or go back a few seconds and, and listen. So it's, although it's visual, it's the auditory part of it, I think is also quite important as well. Uh, I don't think it's changing it, but I think done properly, you know, kind of video can complement written content and, and, and likewise, you know, your written content can take people to, to your video content. And if you use your, your video content, you can, people want more information, you want to consume it a different way, then, you know, they, these things can complement each other as well. Great. And in terms of uh, getting your video content seen, if you're a marketer who's creating video content, uh, what are some of the best practices for optimizing video content so it can be seen in search and social media? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Certainly in terms of search, in terms of YouTube, YouTube along with obviously is owned by Google and they have their, their separate algorithms. But there are some basic things that have always been the case. Uh, and it's actually surprising how how many people ignore the basic things, you know? So first of all, 
doing some research before you produce content, is this the content that people actually want to consume? You know, if you're spending time creating content that there's no audience for, then it's maybe not the best use of your time. So, you know, doing some basic research, you know, through uh, keyword tools or even looking on the front page of Google, uh, you know, what people are looking, you know, the uh, people also ask section, that kind of thing. Uh, and crafting content around what your audience is actually already looking for. So that puts you ahead of the game straight away. Uh, don't just think of keywords, though, think of questions. You know, what are people actually looking for? Uh, and if you have those questions or those, those target search terms you're looking for, you know, things like putting them in the video title, uh, adding those words into the first 20 or, four, 20 or so words in the description, because that's seen. You know, when you see the video preview, those those little words are those ones are seen. Uh, good, good use of your description. You know, the the, the box below your YouTube video. Uh, you know, putting a lot of good content in there that's very rich and gives the the YouTube algorithm an opportunity to really know what the video is around. Uh, having said that, Google, you know, obviously can read video content. You know, they put their own timestamps on. Uh, but you can optimize your timestamps as well, making sure that, you know, those, those timestamps are saying what it is you want your audience to, to see as well. Uh, it all begins, all be getting watched. And so that means, you know, good click-through rate from the, the, the page, the, the YouTube search results page. So one of the key things on that, obviously, is, uh, is a good engaging thumbnail. But ultimately, it also comes down to, uh, you know, to, to have content that people want to to watch and people do watch you know so keeping people engaged not not taking more time than you need to uh, and also engaging with the audience you know encouraging people to like to share and actually if people are commenting below your video then reply to those comments make it seem much more interactive you know people google youtube they like that kind of that kind of activity so in a way, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In, in many ways, yeah. In many ways, the, these basic things are, you know, at the end of the day, YouTube's algorithm and Google's algorithm are precisely that. They are just looking for certain signals, you know, and if we don't put them in the obvious places and we don't take advantage of the places to that we can, you know, put content, like tags, et cetera, then we're, then we're missing a trick. So uh, switching to another uh, technology that's that's strongly shaping the content marketing landscape, or is, or, or is at least promising to, um, and might shape everything else for that matter as well, it's artificial, artificial intelligence. Um, Stephen, from your perspective, how significant is AI now for content creation and, and distribution? What effect is it having at this point? Uh, I think it's, it's massive. I... You know, I think if you look at, if you take it in the whole round with what's happening in search, because I, I think search is, is the way that most people access, uh, you know, the content that produced, then, you know, I think Google made more than $160 billion last year from, reportedly from, from advertising. Uh, and they went in a panic at the end of last year when ChatGPT, you know, came out in a big blaze of glory and went public. Uh, you know the the internal documents that were leaked showed that they had a they they had a self declared code red situation, uh, and you've seen that you know the interesting change a little bit. You know Bing Bing now has more daily users than it's ever had ever. 
you know, uh, they've obviously got a, a Bing chat, which is, you know, basically has a, it's sourcing really from a, a, a lower version of, of chat GPT. Uh, so there's a, there's like a bit of an, a potential arms race going on at the moment between these two ginormous, uh, you know, corporations. And, you know, Google's been, how can we say it, kindly borrowing content from websites, you know, for, for the past few years. You know, they've been snippets. using, they've been, yeah, they've been looking for the feature snippets, et cetera, exactly. They've been looking for ways to present the answers on their page so that people don't don't actually have to go through to, to, to websites. But at the same time, they need the content from those websites to essentially sell sell those uh, those advertising spots, you know. So it's a, it's an in, it's an interesting time. Uh, Google himself has said internally, you know, that they reckon that the uh, the number of active websites has plateaued. That in some cases, we've reached peak uh, peak you know web website, uh, but they have to get that information from that information from from somewhere. Uh, you know, and they can get it, you know, from the from the AI model. So if, if content users, you know, if, if website owners or content marketers are only using AI generated content, you know, not the tools that we would use, you know, Google, Bing, etc., they have tools that are better. So if all their content is just, you know, largely coming from AI uh, generation, then they don't need that content because they can generate on their own without having to give any kind of attribution, attribution at all. So I think in this new realm, and it is, but it's interesting right now, literally right now as we're we're on this call, Google has just begun their uh, their developers conference, uh, and they're expected to announce the or give some preview at least of the new future of search, uh, as far as Google's concerned. And one thing it seems pretty certain is going to happen is that the the the, the search page on Google being a, a list of websites that looks like it's going to be history. Uh, you know what Google co calls it internally a page of ten blue links. You know ten clickable links. Uh, it looks like that's uh, that's going to be going. And we might find out in the next few hours a little bit of a sense of what that looks like. So there will be more video content likely. There'll be more ways where people can search within search. Uh, but I think one of the strange things about that is that if there's less websites or, or links to websites appearing on, on page one of Google, on the other search engines as well, then in a way it means, it makes those three, four, five, whatever it is, uh, links, in a way it makes them even more valuable. You know, so people are still going to go to to, to search engines for content, uh, and I think people those search engines will will still need to give some attribution and some other sources other than just what's coming from them. You know, people in a way will maybe trust that content a little bit more. So I think it makes the you know the need to to have content that that actually stands out above. You know, will, in some ways, may well be an AI-generated responses on on a lot of the, the the search result pages. It makes the the importance of having a, a unique and a strong and you know a, an authoritative voice. I think in in some ways much more important. Right, that's interesting. Well, we'll talk about authority in a minute, actually. Sure. Okay, that's interesting. So it really is disrupting search then. Oh, um, hugely, hugely. Is the same in Google? Google, you know, it's, even if even Google lost 
you know, billions of their valuation because it looked like Samsung may go with a Bing search engine. The, the rumor that Google was investigating Samsung, as uh, sorry, Samsung was investigating having a Bing rather than Google on their phones, you know, took a took a billions of Google's valuation uh, because that's the key to their that's the key to their income. They need eyeballs on their search results, uh, but they also need eyeballs that are used to different ways of, of getting information. You know, we spoke earlier about the likes of TikTok, you know, short videos, all that kind of stuff, a lot more user-created content. Uh, you know, they're, they're needing to be creative. And if you even just take a look, do a search, <clears throat> a number of searches, for example, if you look at Google, uh, sorry, Google versus Bing, uh, you know, Bing looks, Bing looks a lot nicer than Google. You know, so Google's, I don't think they're 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 in, in mortal danger by any means. You know, people still talk about I'm going to Google something, and I've never heard anyone say I'm going to Bing that. Uh, you know, so they're still ubiquitous in some senses, uh, but they definitely have they've got fight on their hands that I don't think they quite saw come. That's interesting. So, Linnea, how are you experiencing AI currently? Do you see it in being used in content creation at the moment? Yeah, for me, um, I personally don't use a lot of AI in my professional life, but um, the way I see myself using AI in other parts of my life is it's nice to be able to search something online and have it returned to you in a way that somebody might say it to you in real life. So having it said in full sentences and having it touch on different points and then like maybe give you more ideas and what to search further. And also, frankly, it does, I can... I ha it's that sense of trust that this entity is searching the whole internet to give me these answers, which is something that I definitely wouldn't have the patience to do myself. So in that sense, it's comforting that it can provide you that information. As far as using it for creating content, I wouldn't, I wouldn't entirely be jumping into that scenario where I'm having to write our blogs and having it come up with new prompts, but I would definitely take advantage of it for creating things like new topics um, to write about or to make videos about, um, to provide some inspiration for new topics. Like even just earlier today, I was searching about like, you know, what's the biggest issue facing people who are doing ELISA kits in the lab, uh, which is a type of testing. And then it can tell you like, these are certain, these are like very common problems that people search when it comes to when they're finding they have questions about Eliza kits. And so I can, there's six, six ideas right there that you can make into blogs. You can make into short form videos. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say with the drawbacks of using AI, I think that kind of keep me back from, from falling into it completely is just that we talked so much earlier in this webinar about creating that human face and making human connections. And I feel like when you're using AI to, to write something um, you can lose that point. And, because I think the strongest point that the strongest way that humans can connect with customers or connect with each other is through emotion. And that's one thing in, that's one big thing that that engines like AI, like ChatGPT are are lacking. Um, so yes and no, both. <laughs> I suppose by definition, when you when you go to something that everyone else can use to make the content, then you're going to get the same content as everyone else out of there. So using it for idea generation is fine but then ultimately it has to be you the human with the your nuance and your insight and your empathy that is going to really have that again what we went back to in the beginning of of what is content marketing it's about communicating with people and and uh making connection with them so 
yeah. yeah. You don't want to do that through your arm, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was thinking that um, the content can be almost anything. Content can be as creative as the, the people who are design behind the design. Um, yeah. And that comes from, from human inspiration and from human curiosities, um, which is still lacking in AI so far. So <laughs> I think we're safe for now. Be interesting to see if it ever gets there. <laughs> um, so, Debbie, how do you see you? So, you're you're you, as far as I understand, are more or a lot of what you do is creating rich content like courses and webinars. Do you see uh, is there potential for AI in the creation of that stuff? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were we kind of jumped on it as soon as it came out to really understand what the impact was going to be. And I think certainly we we have a team of medical writers um, who uh, produce uh, manuscripts for publication and for, for conferencing. And certainly we wanted to look at how we could use it um, to optimize what we were doing, because we said if we, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Um, and what it's useful for is just getting that starting point you know what when we start to define what the story is going to be whether it is a manuscript for say for publication or whether it is for a slide set or whether it's a learning course is help us just define what that that story flow could look like but what we've really found with it is the the real question the, the real interesting thing about using ai in any of its forms it's having that experience to know what question to ask um, and, and how to ask that question, because that really does determine what you get back out of it. And it's just like if you were interviewing um, a key opinion leader, you only get back from them what question you ask in the first place. So I think that's becoming an art in its own right, is actually how to interact with with um, AI to get their best back out. And we you know, we, we now you get to a point where you say, right, you need to act as a specific person. So the first thing you say to it is you are a microbiologist. You are a lab technician. Now tell me the information that I need to know. So you are you know, going back to your point there about you have to personalize it. You are personalizing your AI to act in a certain way and to, to get the best out of it. And I think the other point I wanted to make was also we work very closely with scientific journals. And I think that's going to be a world that's going to have to change quite radically in terms well, yeah. of the incorporation of AI. I was only reading this morning that I think someone's got caught out that one of the journals actually published an article where they obviously didn't do too much peer review because at the end of the article, it says regenerate response. Um, so it obviously been copied straight through from um, from, from uh, ChatGPT. Um, but no, I think I think it is important. I think we we ignore it at our peril. Um, but it's very important that we look at how we can integrate it and how we can personalize it and make sure that it is accurate. Because, again, from our world, we need to make sure that everything is referenced and accurate and that we're not taking anything for granted that comes through any automated system. Yeah. OK. <laughs> I, I like the thing about the journals. It did occur to me the other day how out of date journals are now or, or, the, or that mode of, of communication. It'll be interesting to see how that develops as well, just in general. Um, so you you touched on um, on key opinion leaders, and, and that's the the last topic we were um, looking to discuss today. About um, you know, one thing that we've seen in recent years in our sector is the increasing importance of authority. So whether that's because Google uh, adds the EAT parameters, which mean that content with uh, academic or industry authority is ranked higher in search, or is that the sheer volume of content 
uh, now available means that authority figures are more useful than ever as a way to cut through the noise. So science being a hierarchical community is absolutely primed for this kind of influencer marketing, but good relationships, Debbie, are, um, are key with these influences or the key opinion leaders are generally called in this sector. Those are vital. What are some of the best practices you find for building and maintaining relationships with key opinion leaders? I think it goes back to that who is it that you really want to be your influencer in this sector? Yeah. And actually, what is it that you want them to, to be talking about? Because we did a lot of work during the pandemic over the, the noise that was around vaccines and vaccine development. And there was a lot of people promoting themselves as being vaccine experts and vaccine influencers. But actually, it was really trying to engage with the people that were talking about it in the right way and, and helping them and briefing them to talk about it so that actually the messages that were coming across couldn't be misconstrued. Um, because I think the, the, the difficulty with influencer marketing is to make sure that they are keeping on the message that you actually want them to, to be portraying um, because they have huge power. And Stephen, you're the expert on this, but in terms of search engine optimization, we know that the more you can get, it, it, it is the better, better, but you want to be in the right way because otherwise you could have a real detrimental impact on your brand is that suddenly you somebody you are supporting and thinking that they are your key influencer actually can quickly go off message and can cause a lot of damage very quickly. Um, so it's just really important that you keep very close to them, um, identify them in the first place, but keep really close to them so that they, they we, we know what messages are being portrayed. Stephen, have you got anything to say about influencer marketing? Yeah, thanks, Debbie. Yeah, I suppose for me, the uh, there's, there's a reason why Google and I'm saying Google is a kind of, that's a shorthand for search engines. You know, they, they place such a, an, an importance on authority in search. Uh, Google, a few years ago, created a, a part of their quality raters guidelines, what they talked about, expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. And these were the things that we're looking for, uh, you know, to, to start promoting content. They added to that last year, they added a, an, a, an extra E at the beginning around experience. So they're looking for experience, expertise, authoritativeness and trustworthiness. That's the content that they want to present. Uh, and, and that becomes more important depending on the type of niche or you know the type of kind of area of, of people are looking in. And so they have uh, what they call YMYL, which means your money, your life. And these are certain areas of search uh, that are particularly important. So if you get the wrong information, you could, it will affect, you know, could negatively affect your finances. Uh, or if you get the wrong information, it could negatively affect your health or, or that kind of thing. So, so for those types of searches in particular, it becomes even more critical uh, for a search engine to, to make sure that the voices that are, you know, that are there on, on page one are ones that, that ones that they can, that ones that they can trust. Uh, so trust is trust is, is the key thing basically because obviously they don't you know they, they probably don't want any harm to be caused by the results uh, and also you know they don't want to uh, get into political trouble as well uh, you know over the kind of results that they're that they're showing. So experience is a big part of this actually of demonstrating trust. Uh, you know so for you know if you're using a trustworthy figure or someone you know on your website and you're trying to 
to show trust, then Google doesn't know trust. You know, as I said earlier, they're just an algorithm. They're just going through the web, scraping content and making connections. Uh, but they know some of the signs of what some some someone who had trust would be. So, for example, uh, it's really important. For example, you know, if you have if you're using content, the author of that content or the authors of that content, that you know, you link out to as, as many of their profiles as possible. So, you know, their LinkedIn, if they're on, on any uh, academic you know websites, uh, any you know uh, government websites, those kinds of things. Because what happens is from linking from your content, and there is always a list kind of thing, oh, we might lose people. They're going to go there instead of our website. But linking out is a way to demonstrate the authority of, of, the, of the author. Uh, because what, because I say, Google and search engines follow those links and essentially, you know, they put those pieces together and think, okay, this someone who was trustworthy, someone who was authoritative, someone who had the expertise, would likely have links to these kinds of websites. And that's how they, they kind of parse that picture. That's how they, they put that picture together. Another thing I think as well, which uh, I'll kind of work with a couple of clients with, and it's, it's, it's made a big difference, is around the, the demonstrating of, of the expertise. You know, when Google makes a big change like this, it's, it's incredibly important to actually pay attention and think, well, what does this mean? They are making this big thing around expertise because obviously from expertise comes more potential trust you can trust what someone's saying if they've done it and so for things like uh, for content that can be talking you know rather than just talking generally you know making that more taking a little bit more possession over that you know so um in the lab i did or when i was doing you know so it's much more about it's much more a person or even you know, my team and I, we did, or we discovered those kinds of things. Putting that kind of content, even just going through and changing some words and existing content, and maybe, you know, it's worth seeing what happens, follow on analytics and, and get a little bit of a sense of that. Also things along like video content. Is there a way you can actually have, show the person doing what they're talking about? You know, again, that just shows that expertise that this person genuinely, you know, has uh, knows what they're talking about. Or images, you know, so an image of someone. So rather than necessarily, you know, a stock head and shoulders image, but for a, 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 an author bio or an article, show that person doing the thing they're actually talking about, you know, and in the, the image description and, and the different ways you can add information into the image, say that, you know, here is Dr. So-and-so doing this in their lab in such and such a place, uh, such and such a university or wherever it is. Uh, those kinds of things can make a big, big difference for showing that, showing to a search engine, okay, these are the indicators that we can trust this content a little bit more. Thanks, Stephen. Um, sorry about my dropout there. I'll talk about more of that, <laughs> that more in a minute uh, <laughs> when we're talking about technology. Um, Linnea, over to you about, uh, about this authority uh, idea. So how do you go about getting academics into your community webinar programs? Yeah, um, so our events team, uh, obviously we wanna find, we're looking for people to speak in our webinars now that we have, we, ever since COVID, we have a very, we've been required really to, to find a new avenue to have a really well-oiled way of producing these webinars, even, even after having, uh, returning post-COVID to like a registration that were normal before. Um, but we've continued doing these webinars. So finding the KOLs for this is, is really important. And 
uh, funny enough is that we usually find them, a lot of them at in-person events. So because uh, our company attends a lot of conferences, big and small and vendor shows and um, what our events team does is we actually go to the posters, we go and we see what the people are talking about, what they're excited about, and then usually either them or their advisors are nearby. And then we can get into a conversation with those people about like, what are your goals? Um, because a lot of the time with people who are rising stars or people who already command a lot of attention is they want to continue in that direction. So if you find the right person uh, that you think they have something that your audience would also enjoy hearing. It's a win-win situation. You have something they want, a platform, and they have something you want, an opinion. So, so that's a big, a big way that we find our KOLs. Um, but of course, when in-person events or the right people can't be found, um, you, just reaching out to people on, on platforms like on LinkedIn. Um, so, putting, being able to have a face behind that cold email. Um, can mean a lot more than receiving a cold email. And then also paying attention to putting a personal touch in that reach out, be like, you know, I just saw the paper you published. I thought it was really interesting for this reason. Or I saw you in a webinar or I saw your poster presentation on this platform. Um, so, so yeah, those, those are some of the ways we, we've been able to recruit people for and continue our relations with, with them. Yeah, I think funnily enough, there's a lot of automation, automated outreach on LinkedIn now. So the, main, the, the way through that again is the, is the personal touch and showing that you know who they are and, and it's not just some random, random approach. I guess that's worth, is it worth it then in the end to get those key opinion leaders? Do you find that those webinars with those, those people, uh, you know, with uh, key opinion leaders or rising stars, give you more engagement with your audience in webinars as opposed to if you did it internally, you know, with someone internally? Yeah. So we kind of have several different types of topics we talk about. One of the big topics that is where our own internal speakers really go a long way is um, webinars on transitioning from academia to industry jobs. Because most of the people in our company, not including myself, but have transitioned from doing a PhD or doing a postdoc to then working at Protein Tech. So they have the exact time information that, that people want to know if they're coming to a webinar like that. Um, but when it comes to more technical content, uh, research presentations, um, we find that the the ones with external speakers um, do tend to get higher higher registrations just because they have that authority. They Maybe they saw their paper somewhere else or they even read it or they took references and citations to use in their own experiments. So it's that trust aspect that probably influenced pe more people to register for those types of events. Okay. Interesting. So it's all worth it for the, you know, the personal face of the people who you know, know, know what they're talking about, I guess. So we lost him again. Yes, I think so. Um, I, I would say I think that's really, really interesting what you're saying, because like, you know, I think also what we found is that when we do get um, these, you know, people that have got really good subjects to talk about, we still need to do really good briefings with them when it comes to our web webinars and conferences to really help them understand how to tell their story. Because they, they may be an expert in their field, they may be written the most brilliant scientific content, but actually they need help in translating that into a webinar situation so they can condense it into their 20, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes um, to really get their points across. Yeah. I think uh, communicating between scientists can often be a little bit difficult, but that's one of the most essential parts of being a scientist as well as being able to share what you've discovered. Um, so that's definitely true. 
absolutely. Okay. Um, I think there's one final point, um, which maybe we can talk about, which is um, VR. Um, and I don't know if either of you've got any um, experience in actually using VR yet in the, the biotechnology space at all, or whether you think that it's going to have a, a role in the future. Certainly not from my perspective. Uh, I have no experience of that whatsoever. I think, though, when you know, kind of in terms of, you know, if we kind of jump forward as to you know what kind of things we might find or things to keep our eye on. Uh, then you know, from my my from my side, I still think I'm I'm still I'm not giving up on SEO yet. You know, I've, I've been doing this for about twelve years now, and every every eighteen months, there's SEO is dead comes along. Uh, and I think you know, with ChatGPT, with the, the AI, the, the, and the upcoming changes in search engines, how they're going to be presenting information, then I I, I still feel incredibly optimistic in that. I think you know. The theme, if you like, of what we've talked about is that people trust what people are saying, you know, and if it's really clear that this is where the people's answers are, that's where people are going to go. You know, you may have a content, you know, more people become aware that a lot of this content, you know, can be trusted, but it's likely to have come from a machine. But you know, here's the people content. I think you'll still find that the same way as, you know, even though Google may have loads of adverts, you know, the top, the top of the page on top of a, a search page. People will scroll through them to the organic results because they know their adverts. It's like these are somehow they have more confidence in those results. So I still think search is is going to be an interesting place. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's going to be even more valuable to be there, uh, especially if there's if there's going to be less competitors there, you know, less other websites there. Another thing I think as well, which I think people should be kind of kind of forward pacing a little bit would be areas where you know it's only people and it's only people you can trust. So I think, you know, if I was in any kind of space right now, I'd be looking at things like closed closed groups, like membership sites, you know, forum websites, uh, or social media groups, you know, where you can moderate who comes in and who comes out. Um, you know who's there and you know that you're, you're, you know who you're talking to, you know the criteria. I think those, those places where you can trust, you know, you can trust that what you say is going to be going to be understood and going to be, you know, uh, people are going to be interested in what it is you're, you're, you're saying and also where you can discuss and you can receive information from people who are, you know, are, are worth listening to. I think that those kinds of things are going to become more important. I think you'll see, I, I do think you'll see a movement towards that where it's like, okay, if there's so much AI stuff out there, and it, a lot of it is really good, and it's going to get better. Let's not. It's going to be. It's, it, a lot of it's already good. It's, it's only going to get better. But that sense of I want to, I want to feel that confidence. There's other people here. I think that's going to become uh, become even more valuable. Okay, and uh, Linnea, what, what's your thoughts on what trend will you be looking at? Yeah, for for things like virtual reality and augmented reality, it's definitely feels very far off for me. Um, I think as a as a small or medium business, I guess that Protein Tech is, um, we have we talk a lot about how to produce content at scale um, for all of our customers, and we're just working with video, written, and, and webinar content. So talking about something uh, something like that is definitely. Uh, 
far future for us if if it ever is. But I think what one thing I could see is um, it's going to require a lot of creativity. Um, because as like as a consumer myself, like interacting with the internet and uh, augmented reality platforms, more more so than not, this might be a controversial opinion, but more so than not, it seems kind of like overkill, and it doesn't necessarily help uh, help me. It's, it's kind of cumbersome, you know. It doesn't necessarily help me make easy decisions, um, which as a marketer is something that I I'm trying to make it as simple and as clear as possible for people. So to put that those complexities in that maybe aren't necessary um, to convince somebody to buy something like a product that we sell um, might be a little bit of overkill in my opinion. Okay, and, and Debbie, Debbie, what will you be looking at? Um, I think I've probably got the opposite opinion actually. I, I kind of embracing kind of the, the, the new technologies because I think in our world, the, there really is a good opportunity. And I think when you come to surgical devices, whether you look at diagnostics, really helping to people understand actually what's going on without them actually being in a lab and on a bench to actually, you know, educate them on what a, you know, uh, a device can actually do and how you can demonstrate that i think there is a, a great opportunity for for the the vr space um and i think it's very exciting that actually we can start to educate in other countries so we don't have to bring people together into a workshop to be able to do that we can offer you know potentially really immersive experiences to people in low and middle income countries you know people that are not going to be able to um have the resources or technology to be able to digest that content normally we can offer them that in a potentially in a virtual space so maybe this is a way of actually you know getting equality into um education around healthcare um that we haven't really seen before you know obviously technologies need, need to advance to be able to do that but i i think we're heading heading into a really exciting space in terms of healthcare communication and education yeah that's, that's actually interesting it's a good, it, yeah. it's a good two different things, slightly different spheres yeah yeah, yeah. it's Sorry, a good point depend no it's okay depending on your depending on like what your company is, is bringing to the table uh, as uh, with our company it's more of our products literally can't be seen by the naked eye. So maybe doing something like that isn't necessarily going to fit for us. But if you're working more with uh, things like like tools, lab bench tools, um, doing something like that, can, that was a really good point, can bring it to people who can't necessarily go to a shop. They can't have a salesperson visit them and bring these tools to show them. Uh, but, and I also think that it can, in terms of like workshops with, with this VR like that, can bring a kind of a, a little bit of fun and uh, interactive experience for, for people. And I think that can do good things for um, how your brand is being seen, not just showing you products, but also trying to like have a little bit of fun with you as well. Excellent. So thank you everyone for that input. That brings us to the end of our time today. Um, thanks Debbie Cocaine, Linnea Wolf and Stephen McTaggart for a, an illuminating discussion. And thanks from me for, uh, for hanging in there while I proved that it's not all about the technology, it's about the people. This isn't a, a clever virtual background behind me. This is uh, actually, I was stuffing, stuck in a traffic jam and had to pull over and do this uh, with resulting calamity. So uh, thanks to you all for hanging in for, uh, for that and for the, our production team here for, for dealing with it with the frantic phone calls in the background. Uh, and finally, thanks to all of you, our audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you enjoyed the discussion, please check out the other upcoming and on-demand panels from fellow life science marketers at life science marketing life, 
let's say that again, lifesciencemarketingsociety.org. And don't forget to tell your colleagues about the Life Science Marketing Society. So until next time, good luck in your work and goodbye from all of us at the Life Science Marketing Society.